Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning, and today my guest is Mike Cross, who's an Alexander Technique teacher in Aylesbury, England, which is north of London. Uh, Mike uh, has been um, an Alexander, has trained as an Alexander Technique teacher in 1995, but he's for over 30 years, he's been involved in practicing sitting meditation. I guess we could call it Zen meditation, Mike, is that correct? Absolutely. The, the word Zen comes from a, a Sanskrit word, dhyana, which means meditation or, or thinking, actually. Okay. So Mike has spent a lot of his life sitting and thinking about sitting, and of course, Zen practitioners... Uh, put a huge emphasis on sitting correctly. So what we're going to be talking about today is not so much Zen sitting, but sitting for the general public. And we're going to see if between the two of us, we can come up with some useful suggestions for those of you who have to sit, which pretty much includes most of us, probably all of us. So uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Thank, and, thank you, Robert. And I'd like to begin by, by having you just say a, a word or two how you uh, got involved with the Alexander Technique in the first place. I assume it was during the time you were already doing Zen sitting. Is that right? That's right. And uh, you, you, in your introduction there, you, you talked about sitting and thinking about sitting. And uh, to tell you the truth, I, I spent the first... Uh, 13 years of, of my Zen sitting practice, not really thinking about sitting, but just doing it. That's, that's a sort of a, a Japanese Zen ethic. You know, don't think, just do it, just do it. And uh, then when I came to the Alexander work, I was suddenly subjected to the opposite principle of, you know, stop just doing it. Stop and think about what you're doing and think about how you're doing it. So it really was a, a real turnaround. And uh, I think the same thing could possibly be of use to anybody uh, in their daily life who doesn't really think about sitting, but just does it. Uh, and uh, as a result of that kind of just blind doing what feels right, people get into all kinds of problems with, you know, stiff necks and sore shoulders and, and bad backs and the rest of it. So in a nutshell, Mike, what is the problem for someone who sits the way it feels right. Why is that not such a great idea for a lot of people? Well, because our feeling is wrong. And uh, at least the, all the people that, that I know and I, I work with and have sat with, uh, it turns out that our feeling is wrong in, or faulty in the sense that what we think we're doing or what we feel we're doing uh, isn't actually what we are doing. Um, uh, perhaps you could explain that in your own terms, Robert. You know, you've been teaching the Alexander Technique longer than I have. Well, I, I think uh, I think it's important to to say that when we talk about our feelings not being reliable, we're talking about physical sensation, not uh, our emotions necessarily or anything like that. But what we feel we are doing when we are doing something, and uh, as you say, it, more often than not. Our, our our feeling sensations are giving us faulty information. And one, one way that you could um, uh, think of this in your own life, those of you who are listening, 
you probably know somebody who stands or sits in a very peculiar way. Perhaps they stand pulling over to one side or very severely arching their back or or always very far forward over their feet when they walk. And the chances, and probably that's something that you've noticed and other people around them have noticed, and the chances are pretty high that that person is not aware of it themselves. So that that's kind of a very simplistic example of a person's feelings not being all that reliable. That's right, Robert. And to add to that, though, as you've kind of suggested, because sitting is such a big deal, in, in particularly in the Japanese way of sitting zen, zazen as it's called, it's almost as if we've exaggerated the problems that members of the general public would have in sitting. And you talking about more physical sensory input that's coming in. But the emotional side is also really important because what you, what you see from people who, like me, who practiced sitting meditation in a very sort of overdoing way is that the feeling that this is the right way, this is the right way of sitting, that is a very big part of, of the faulty sense of feeling. It's, it's part of the feeling that I am right. And, and, and this, is, uh, this is what Alexander noticed in the religious world in general, what he called fixing, which he called our worst evil. That, that, that the feeling that I am right and others are wrong uh, is tied up with, with fixing, with trying to be right, with religious dogmatism, with being afraid to be wrong. And in sitting, all that kind of manifests itself in a kind of rigidity of sitting posture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, actually, Alexander, uh, one of his famous quotes is, uh, everybody wants to be right, but nobody wants to consider whether their idea of right is right. Absolutely. And I think that gets to the heart of it. Um, so, so people, even if they're not particularly religious, for example, just ordinary people who are sitting and maybe are uncomfortable... Uh, will often uh, make an adjustment which they think is going to improve their sitting. So often if they're slumping, they will go to the opposite extreme of over-straightening and uh, in an, uh, uh, following an idea of sitting up straight. And that might, in fact, temporarily alleviate some of the discomfort caused by the slump but it creates a whole new set of excess tensions and pretty soon they're going to be back down in the slump anyway. So people do tend to s try to sit in a way that's right, but it doesn't actually accomplish anything. Would you, you, would you want to amplify that a little bit or should we move well, on from there? No, I think that we're absolutely the, the most important thing for people to try and understand is that our efforts to make ourselves better relying on feeling which is faulty actually make things worse so that uh, if if people try to correct their posture or worse if, if some kind of militaristic parade ground sergeant major encourages them to to have a better posture they'll actually be in a worse condition than they were in the original thing they thought needed corrected probably a kind of a slump yeah, and you know, it doesn't even have to be a, a militaristic drill sergeant. It could just be an advice column in the paper 
that says something like, oh, be sure to sit up straight at work or be sure to watch your posture, whatever that means. And um, I think we probably would both agree that those kind of instructions, which are are all over the place, I mean, they are pretty much 99% of all postural advice are at best useless and at worst maybe may probably harmful. Absolutely. So we've we've kind of covered the negative side of things and I don't want to dwell too much more on it, but I think the listener wants to know now, well what what can I do that's actually going to be useful for my for my posture and particularly my posture sitting because I'm at a desk 8 hours a day for example, uh, or well, driving, I'm commuting two hours a day to work in my car. Um, wh- what what can we say to someone that's actually going to be helpful to them? Well, I think uh, we should say to them that try to understand that if, if you stop doing the wrong thing, then the right thing might have a chance of doing itself. That's the thing we really need to emphasize. So, so the trick is to become aware, not to be afraid of doing the wrong thing, to be aware of what the wrong thing is and then stop it. Okay, so, so, yeah. So, for example, mm-hmm. uh, if, if we talked about those two kind of possibilities that people usually have of uh, relating to gravity, there's this, the sort of a tired slump and then there's the, the kind of hyperextended militaristic upright posture. Uh, to actually explore those two wrong things, if you like. Uh, and it, the more clearly you can see the wrongness, you know, in terms of you can't breathe very well if, if you're in one way or the other, uh, if you can see the wrong thing, then you can stop it. Uh, this, this is one thing that I had a lot of lessons with Marjorie Barlow, who was Alexander's niece. And she used, she used to say that, FM would say that if you think you're doing the wrong thing, like, for example... If when you're lying down uh, with, your, with your head on some books on, on a table and you feel that you're pulling your head back into the books, then jolly well go and do that as hard as you can. Pull the head back into the books so you're creating a lot of tension and sort of arching, arching the neck and shortening the spine and holding your breath. Go and do that and then stop and then do it again. So you know what, you know what the wrong thing is and then stop. So this kind of turns around certainly my approach that that i had when i came to zen was i was trying my very best to sit in the right posture it never occurred to me to actually you know dare to sit deliberately badly and explore the thing that i was afraid of being which was wrong i think yeah that's and we should just say here that the fm that you refer to is f matthias alexander who was the developer of this of this work um, I think that's an excellent suggestion. In fact, I would say probably your best bet as a listener is to give up any idea that there really is a right way to sit or a wrong way to sit, but there might be ways of sitting that are going to be a lot easier on you. And your suggestion of taking a habitual way of sitting, say say the slump, and exaggerating it for a brief period of time is an excellent one. You're not going to harm yourself as long as you're doing that consciously. And w- one experiment that you might want to make right now is 
uh, if you're listening to this, is to whatever you're doing, however you're sitting, if you could just exaggerate it a little bit and notice what happens and then stop that exaggeration and see what happens and experiment with doing that at more subtle and subtle levels. So initially, let's say you're slumping, you could increase the slumping a fair amount, notice the effects of it, and then just say, that's the end of that, and you will probably notice a change, and a change for the better. And if you could develop an ability to make that kind of experiment, becoming more and more subtle in the amount of, ten of extra stuff you're doing and then just stopping doing that, that that in itself is a very very powerful learning process and will show you all kinds of things about your patterns and ways to, and ways to release the harmful ones. Do you want to add anything to that Mike? Well I think the thing you've touched on there Robert which is so important and again there's no easy draw distinction between the general public and the Zen community because in both groups, we're all suffering from too much unconscious behavior and not enough conscious behavior. And uh, the key thing you pointed out there was that doing the wrong thing is not harmful, providing that you're doing it consciously, because then you can stop it. Exactly, uh, exactly. And, and you could, if, if you tend to be a bit of a slumper, for example, it wouldn't hurt you to go into a really severe slump just for Absolutely. a few seconds to find out what's involved in that and how do you do it and what are the effects. And then after you've spent maybe a few seconds there, you could say, I don't want that anymore. So I'm just going to stop doing it, which is quite different from saying I'm going to straighten up now. You just say no, no, no to the excess slumping, basically. Or, or because we're, we're complicated and, and we compensate, what, that, the thing that a lot of Zen people would find useful would be because in Zen, the slump is the thing we don't want. And so people tend to go to the overdoing, holding themselves up. Right. There's a guy and, with I, a big stick that will whack you, right? Exactly. If you're sitting, if you're, sitting, if you're slumping. That's that's the sort of the, the image. I mean, the, yeah. the reality is a little bit more complicated. But but in that in that situation of because I'm afraid I don't want to slump and so I hyperextend. In that situation, if I allow myself a little bit of a slump, it's it's amazing how the breathing will then open up, and that, and that's a good little you know a sign that something's gone in. A, it, it felt to me like the wrong thing to do, to sort of slump a little bit, but my breathing showed me actually it wasn't such a bad thing to do after all. Uh, right. And, uh, so, so just to elaborate on that, let's say, let's say you are doing what you, you, the listener, are doing what you consider sitting up straight. One thing you might do is just rev that up a little bit, exaggerate that a little bit, just for a few seconds, and see what the effects of that are, and then say no to that and come back to just your normal idea of sitting up straight. And then you might want to say, what would happen if I went into what seemed to me a little slump? Very little. And be, as you say, one thing to observe is your breathing. 
particularly how full it is, how free it is. Breathing is a pretty reliable indicator of of the quality of your of your overall functioning. So you might be amazed to discover if 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 you know that you tend to sit up very straight or people have commented on your erect posture that when you go into a tiny slump your breathing gets freer even though it feels wrong to you to be in that slump. If your breathing is freer, that's a really good indication that you've made an improvement in the quality of your sitting. And it, it's, a, it's a kind of an operational verification, you know, in practice, of what Alexander meant by if you stop doing the wrong thing, the right thing can do itself. Because... Exactly. And, and, and I think we should probably say here that one of the things that really distinguishes the Alexander technique from pretty much every other uh, self-improvement modality in the area of body mechanics, let's say, or body functioning, is that Alexander teachers generally don't go around telling people to do a new thing. They're much more interested in getting a student to to notice what he or she is already doing that may not be helpful, that may in fact be kind of harmful to them, to notice that and to and to be become comfortable and to to make it uh, to learn to very easily just say no I don't want to do that anymore and the the underlying assumption is that when you say no to the harmful patterns the right thing is going to take care of itself I mean we were we came from the factory pretty nicely wired up and most kids at around five or six if you watch them they can do a lot of things and they and so you can watch them in a range of activities and for the most part they're moving very freely and easily uh, five or six years old is a good age to look at because they haven't spent a lot of time in school typically at that point so almost all of us have within us a kind of a natural upright uh, posture that's there but it's just been covered over by by habits that we picked up for one reason or another and the alexander technique is a way of learning what those habits are very consciously and learning how to just gently say no to them uh, if i can come in there robert sure absolutely uh, make things a little bit more complicated uh, the the this thing of the uh, the right thing doing itself uh my Alexander head of training, Ray Evans, observed that, you know, in some children, in some adults, the right thing seems less inclined to do itself than in others. And so he, he really looked in deeply into what was the cause, the root cause. Say some children have what they call dyspraxia, you know, the clumsy child syndrome, mm -hmm. or, or dyslexia, which is generally to do with poorly coordinated eye movements and poor balance. And those children have what are called uh, immature primitive reflexes. I hope this isn't getting too technical, but uh, uh, <clears throat> Alexander himself talked about unduly excited fear reflexes and emotions. And this is something which should be mo more widely recognized in the Alexander world, that, you know, the right thing will do itself. Sometimes the wrong thing will do itself. Uh, well, for sure, not every five or six-year-old kid exhibits um, 
perfect coordination. I mean, there are all kinds of traumas, for example, that can happen to a, a kid earlier on. Or, as you say, they just they may have a condition that that compromises their coordination. But I think well, but, but I think so most I, so, kids so, have pretty good use at around that age. Most most kids. Well, if I just to add something, I, I heard your interview with Jennifer Kello, mm-hmm. which, which I thought was fantastic. Every Alexander teacher should listen to that. And just to, to say what that it's an earlier podcast, and we were talking about uh, babies, uh, moms, and uh, how an Alexander Technique teacher can be of great assistance to uh, someone with a newborn child or a small child. Yeah. So what Jennifer pointed out, and it was a thing that I'd noticed also, is that FM Alexander himself was born two months premature. Yes. That means for sure he had he had immature fear reflexes, the primitive fear reflexes, the baby panic reflex and so on. So so he in a way he evolved his technique to solve his own problem yes. that was root that was rooted in this very serious lack of coordination in himself. So and I think Jennifer would probably agree with me that the more the more you look at young children uh, the more you realize that we're all somewhere on the spectrum of dyspraxia, dyspraxia and dyslexia. And that's kind of got to do with this problem of faulty feeling that we all have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I didn't mean, to, I, I didn't, certainly didn't want to say that every five or six year old kid is functioning perfectly. But for most of us, if you think back to your childhood, you probably had you probably didn't have let's say the aches or pains that you do now and chances are when you went to sit or when you were standing or moving your use your your way of using your body was was probably a lot easier than it is now as an adult and you know yes um kids at that age can have problems and and the alexander technique can help with that as well but the basic thing that we are teaching is how to recognize patterns that are getting in the way and, and how to learn how to let go of them. Absolutely. Well, my wife and I actually work with children with dyslexia and dyspraxia. Uh-huh. Having, having found out about these reflexes, uh, I trained as a developmental therapist to help children who have those problems. And part of that, because I trained and I carried on working in a small way, over the last 10 years with, with, with children like that. And it's it's amazing how, with the children, they haven't developed so much compensation as the adults. So if they do a few movements like crawling on their hands and knees or crawling on their tummy, the right thing will tend to do itself very quickly. I mean, mm-hmm. just, just to confirm what you're saying. Whereas with adults, who have had a lifetime of sort of compensating and learning how to straighten their shoulders and pull the chin in and do, you know, the compensatory mechanisms are developed to help them get by. It's a, the problems are much more intractable uh, in general. Right, and I think um, maybe uh, we should have a separate interview for working with kids. Um, mm-hmm. But just to return to an adult who's listening to this now and wants to be able to sit more easily with greater comfort, not have back pains and stiff necks and shoulders while they're sitting at a desk for eight hours a day. I think another bit of practical advice that we could offer uh, from an Alexander point of view 
and in line with the idea that you want to stop doing the things that are getting in the way is to shift focus a little bit to that area between your head and your torso which you know your your neck basically and um the chances are very very high that if you're if you're slumping or if you're sitting in an overstraight way the chances are very high that you're also tensing or tightening your neck and one thing that and this is one of alexander's big discoveries was that that head neck upper torso area was really important for overall coordination and one thing you might do or might think about is actually talk to your neck may sound a little crazy but give it a try and just actually not even so much talk to your neck but talk to yourself about your neck and say i really don't want to tighten my neck and you could say that very softly without a lot of effort behind it without any demand behind it but just a gentle thought i really don't want to tense my neck or you could even say i'm not tensing my neck you could say that very lightly and you might be surprised at what will happen when you do that particularly if you're paying attention a little bit to your breathing while you're doing that um have you have you ever have you experimented with that mike in terms of teaching people well as you're speaking robert i'm i'm very very conscious of the fact that the listener is going to be trying to do it right inevitably mm, and we don't we want don't, that we don't want that but but that's what they're going to do uh and so we're both aware of that danger i'm also aware of what my teacher marjorie barla used to say is that she would give people that direction in in, in the uh, in the words let the neck be free just to summarize what you said to, to to say to the neck to say to ourselves let the neck be free i wish to allow my neck to be free she she would give people that verbal direction to practice for themselves knowing that they would go they would try and do it and would give themselves a headache and and they would go wrong mhm in the spirit as we were talking before well you've got to go wrong before you can re- realize what the wrong thing is and stop it but i should think out of out of 100 people who've listened to you giving them that direction 100 will not everybody will fail to do nothing they'll, they'll try just to give it a little bit of a help to to do the right thing and that's the the problem we're up against every step of the way yeah that definitely is a problem and another problem is that if they should in fact uh have notice some release or some freeing up of their breathing they'll want to latch on to that and then that takes them away from the the thought that caused that but i think that if you you out there listening could really get that when 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 i'm suggesting that you talk to yourself and say i don't want i don't want to tense my neck you're doing that very very softly as softly as you can imagine you it's not a demand it's not a command it's really just a gentle intention 
That's all it is. It's just a very gentle intention, and you might quickly forget that you're doing that, and then you could just gently come back to it and maybe just do that for 10 or 15 seconds and then forget about it for a while and come back. And with a bit of practice, you might find that you could get to the point where you could say that to yourself without there being any expectation of anything, just a very... It's just a very gentle, gentle uh, bit of self-talk. And I I know exactly what you mean, Marjorie Barlow, talking about that, that people tend to want to make it more complicated, want to add stuff to it. But if you, the listener, could just play with that idea, I'm, I'm not tensing my neck while I'm doing such and such an activity, particularly sitting, which is what we're talking about now, you might be surprised. Well, I, I think your your intention is very creditable, uh, Robert. Uh, and and uh, you know, you, I, I sense your 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 intention there to help people. But an extra word of caution on my own, based on my own experience, after I after I came back from England and spent two years from ninety five to ninety seven training every day, three hours a day, to be an Alexander Technique teacher. I went for my f- first lesson with Marjorie Barlow, who was FM Alexander's niece. And, of course, it was a strong stimulus. I was out to impress her with my, my vast two years of experience that I, that I gleaned. And so I, I, in the first lesson with her, she put her hands on my head and neck and said, let the neck be free. And then she said, no, you're doing it. Now, I was, as far as I was concerned, I was just following the instructions that you've just laid out to very gently do a bit of self-talk. But with her hands, she was picking up that I was trying to be right still. And so she kept saying, no, you're doing it. And and this carried on for about five or ten minutes. She'd say, let the neck be free. No, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Eventually, eventually, I figured out that what she meant by doing it was something so subtle that I hadn't realized up until then what I had not to do. And so I complete the, the metaphor Marjorie used was tomorrow you are hoping it's going to be a nice day because you want to go out on a picnic. It's that quality of not being able to do something. And so when I started thinking like that, she suddenly said, yes, that's it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I could not believe how little doing, you know, there wasn't any doing in it whatsoever right right but it was, it was two years after i've been doing two years of alexander teacher training that that penny dropped well so, so yeah. it's just to emphasize the difficulty of understanding what we're talking about in terms of not doing it is it is definitely a challenge for people and i i don't i think we probably should end this conversation fairly soon but let me uh just um give a little exercise, if you like, that I give new students uh, to that in, in connection with this self-talk about their neck. I, I will typically have them, they're usually sitting when I do this, and I say, you know, there's this table across the room, and it's a pretty nondescript table, and I ask them what color it is. And the answer is brown. It's a very boring little table. And I point out to them that to answer that question, they did have to put a little attention on a a piece of furniture that they probably had not even noticed before. 
And so I start by saying the amount of effort that you had to come up with to come up with that answer, that's the amount of effort we want for thinking about your neck. Yeah. And then I take it one step further and I say, okay, I, I want you in a moment to stand up, take a little walk around the room and sit down again. And the only thing I want you to do different is to be aware that that table is there. You don't have to be looking at it the whole time for sure. But I want you to be in a mental state such that if someone were to ask you a question about the table, you would either have the answer right away or you would know where to look to get the answer. That, that level of interest in the table. It's not a very important table, but you would you you would you kind of elevate it a little bit in your awareness and almost everybody can do that and quite often in fact when they do that they also notice that they're standing up and walking and sitting down are a little easier which is interesting and once they've been able to do that without putting any effort into it without worrying about forgetting the table halfway through and then bringing it back again then i say well if you're making any more of an effort in thinking about your neck than you just thought about the table, then you're making too much of an effort. It's really a virtually no effort at all. So maybe we should, and, and I suppose we should end by saying, of course, if you are concerned about how you're sitting and you want to be able to sit better and do other things better too, if if you can find an Alexander Technique teacher, that might be a really good investment of your time and money because a, a teacher can show you some of the things that we've been talking about in a very direct, hands-on way that will speed up your learning process immensely. You want to add anything to that before we before we close, Mike? No, I'm I'm glad you put it like that, uh, Robert. That that's what the hand, the teacher's hands are there to do to speed up. Uh, the learning process. But uh, I, I hope the listener has sort of uh, at least sensed from our conversation that we're, we're trying to convey something which is very, very difficult to convey in words. But there is truth in it. You know, that's why we're excited by it. You after how, how many years have you been in the work, Robert? I had my first lesson in 1975. So mm. that's forever, you know, and I've been yeah, a teacher yeah. for about 30 years now. Yeah. But it's still exciting, isn't it? To, oh yeah, absolutely. To, to actually absolutely. to try and to try and convey or discuss this truth that Alexander uh, discovered, amazingly. F. Matthias Alexander, who's the developer of this method, was a truly amazing person. He 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 made some discoveries that were basically the discoveries came about through self-observation. He was up against the problem and he wanted to solve it. And in the process of solving it, he came up with some uh, uh, understandings about human movement, human functioning that were are really quite revolutionary. They're very simple. They're not complicated, but they were definitely not in the air at the time he was... Uh, he was coming up with them. So, and, and it, it is a very powerful method. And if you are intrigued by what we're talking about, find an Alexander teacher and and have at least a lesson or two to see see uh, see what it could offer you. And if you happen to be in the Aylesbury, England area, 
uh, contact uh, Mike Cross, and we'll put a link to his website next to this interview. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Robert. To be continued, I, I would hope. Absolutely.